Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, once again, we uh, are amazed and awed by your presence, and we desire tonight to see something of who you are from your word and to be able to understand what it means to have a relationship with you, and particularly in terms of what you have planned in the future and this broader plan that you have for the entire universe, and how we have a part in it. So we desire to take away from this the practical aspects, those things that you desire to impress upon us that would have impact and, in fact, even change our lives. So we want to commit our time and this study. We don't want it to be simply an understanding of sentences and words and passages, but that it would have an impact on our lives. So we just desire that you would speak to us through your word tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night I gave you quite an extensive introduction to the book of Revelation. My hope is that with that you'll be able to fill in some of the detail that we won't be able to deal with in... uh, this course. Tonight we will probably spend a little bit more detail, well we will spend more detail than we normally will in a lot of passages because chapter 1 certainly is foundational to the rest of the book of Revelation. So I'd like to get us started on a firm foundation. Again, we're studying one of the most important books of the whole Bible. (laughs) Don't want you to forget that. This is session two. And first of all, we'll first hour concentrate on the prologue of the book. Oh, session three. You're right. Session three. (laughs) Revelation one. What did I say? Two? Uh, Just a reminder, we talked about several quotes, stressed how important this book is, the goal and consummation of all the Bible. Uh, We can't overemphasize that because this is a prophetic book where God is completing all that he intended to accomplish. And he's told us ahead of time much of what he will, in fact, do. Last night, our concluding thought there was on Revelation 19, or 119, rather. And in that passage, I gave you what Jesus kind of lays out in terms of an outline for the book. And if you notice it, it's more of a temporal outline. In other words, it deals with uh, the time frame of different parts of the book. So it has a past tense portion, uh, the vision, what you saw, the things that you have seen is what uh, the Lord is instructing uh, John in the first in that verse 19. That's the past tense aspect. Things which you have seen, that looks back at the vision in chapter 1 that John had just finished looking at. Secondly, there's a present tense 
part of the outline, and that includes chapters 2 and 3. The things which are, which would include the seven churches. And what he has in view here are insights and certain principles, certain teaching concerning the church age. So those seven churches are primarily designed to teach people in our age. Not that the rest of the book doesn't have application. It, it certainly does. In fact, that's why we're studying the book. But it pertains to an age beyond the church age because that's what Jesus also says. The things which shall take place after these things. The after these things I take to be the age of the church after the things concerning chapters 2 and 3. And I call that pretty much the eschatology of the book. This is the things that are in the future. So it, this is a temporal outline. Now, what I've handed out to you is the beginning of what I would call an exegetical outline. And sometimes an exegetical outline will be different than this outline that Jesus gave. This is the inspired outline, so mine's not inspired. But you try to do different, a different thing with an exegetical outline. You try to capture the essence of a passage and what you are essentially doing is trying to follow the structure of a book. Or in an individual passage, you're looking at the structure of a series of paragraphs, for example. So an exegetical outline, as opposed to Jesus' temporal outline, is what we would call structural. It's a structural outline. The attempt in an exegetical outline is to follow thought by thought and then put together those thoughts to form bigger ideas. In other words, you're forming an outline of a book, trying to trace the thought of the author. What we're attempting to do is to, to think God's thoughts after him because he has revealed his thoughts in Scripture and when you go through the exegetical process, what you're attempting to do is to follow the Scriptures in such a way that you capture those thoughts. So an exegetical outline is an attempt to outline how all of the thoughts that are placed within a book are laid out and you have to trace the structure. And in the hermeneutics exegesis class, we studied how to do that, how to do that for yourself. So, my structural outline is a little bit different than Christ's temporal outline, but they're two different kinds of outlines. It's not that one is right and the other one's wrong. It's that one is structural and one's temporal. So, as long as you understand that, then uh, you'll understand why I've kind of organized the material in this way. As I go through chapters 1, 2, and 3, I'm going to try and show that uh, they... the the three chapters actually work together. In fact, before we get into the specific passages, I'll show you a little of that right away. So, in my outline, the first part of the structure of the book, I see chapters 1, 2, and 3 going together. Okay? And I, in your exegetical outline, what you attempt to do in a little phrase or... No more than a sentence to try to capture as much of the essence of what's contained in that portion. 
So in this division of the book of Revelation, I'm trying to catch the essence of chapters 1, 2, and 3. That's an exegetical outline. In a very brief, summary way. So the outline is the vision of Jesus Christ among the seven churches. Now, you might ask, well, why did you separate or not separate out chapter 1 like Jesus did? His is inspired, right? Why do you deviate? Well, this is structural. And I see as part of the structure, if you notice, in chapter 1, we have the beginning of Jesus instructing John. Okay? Notice verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying... And now we have the beginning of what Jesus told John. And he begins, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, etc., etc. Where does the quote end? That's the question. Where does Jesus' quote end? Look at your Bibles and see. What, what, what do your Bibles seem to indicate? Does it end at verse 19 or does it go into verse 20? It includes verse 20, right? Does it end in verse 20? Or does it continue into chapter 2, verse 1? The quote just continues. Uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, and then he identifies that he is the speaker. He's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand that goes right back to the vision. Okay? So he is still speaking. He has not stopped speaking. So where does it end? Uh, it doesn't end after the church at Ephesus, does it? Nope. What about after the church at Smyrna? Well, uh, I'm not going to go through all seven churches. If you read, you find out. And if you have a red letter edition, it helps you out. <laughs> If you keep reading, you're going to find out the quote doesn't end until you get to verse 22 of chapter 3. So all of that are the words of Jesus. So structurally, all of this kind of hangs together. And that's your first clue. There's some other clues. The uh, introduction to each of the seven letters, each of those goes back to the vision. In fact, the wording oftentimes is the same wording in the description of Christ in the vision. So there seems to be a real close relationship between the, the messages that Jesus gives to these seven individual churches and chapter 1. So structurally, this is why it seems logical to me to include. And in order to capture the, that thought, it's a vision of Jesus Christ. That's essentially chapter 1 among the seven churches. The one that's among the seven golden lampstands. Does that make sense? That's what I'm going to attempt to do throughout the book of Revelation, passage by passage, and you work your way in an exegetical outline all the way down to the details. And that's what you're attempting to do. So down to the details, you're trying to summarize the essence or the thought of what's contained in the passage. Does that make sense? That's the essence of Bible study. That's what you want to do. That's, that's what you're trying to capture. You're trying to understand what God is trying to communicate. He's communicating thoughts and ideas through sentences, through the grammar. 
So we utilize the grammar and analyze it in order to bring to the surface these ideas and thoughts. And then as we work our way through the book, we organize it or try to follow the organization that the Holy Spirit has put there for us. So it's the details of the text that drives the outline. It's not a nice outline that we just want to make. And we try to do this in this way. So that's what we will do as we work uh, throughout the book of Revelation. So we have the vision of Jesus Christ. And I try to summarize the next major division. To me, it seems like it goes from chapter four, verse eight, or chapter four to chapter 18. And the major thrust of that is tribulation. Tribulation. And I include from Jesus Christ because he is a major part of what's being deal, uh, dealt with in terms of judgment and tribulation in that long portion of the book. Uh, you might even include, if you wanted to, uh, an idea of judgment in here. But it, the, the tribulation idea kind of captures that as well. So I see that as the second division. We'll get into a portion of that uh, Saturday or tomorrow. And then to complete the outline, I see the rest of the book, chapters 19 and through 22, as the consummation by Jesus, beginning with the second coming. That pretty much consummates history. Uh, the word consummation captures a lot of detail there. There's consummation of judgment. There's consummation of salvation. There's consummation of destinies. There's consummation of all kinds of issues. All of that is brought to a completion in those last uh, chapters from chapter 19 on. So that is the essence of the structural outline that I will be working from. Now, we won't get to this part until uh, the next part of the class. We'll get a portion of this one uh, beginning tomorrow and, and Sunday. Does that make sense? Any questions on that? You see the difference between what I'm try, uh, trying to convey here in terms of an exegetical outline and what Jesus is doing in verse 19. His is more of a temporal outline. It's a good organization of the book. It's inspired. Uh, but this exposes more the structure of the book. And that's what you attempt to do in an exegetical outline. The entire book of Revelation is more exciting, more gripping, has more drama, has more elements of interest in it than any action thriller that you will ever see put on the silver screen. In fact, uh, no one has the imagination that uh, is portrayed in the book of Revelation. I'm going to kind of use that little illustration, if you will, I guess, or uh, kind of introduction to uh, the first part of the book of Revelation, just kind of convey this idea that what we have in the book is extremely visual. We've already talked about that. Full of visions, things that John saw, and he's trying to describe them. So if you want to kind of use your imagination as we go through the book, think through what John saw 
and try to imagine what he saw. He's tr- that's what he's trying to communicate. He's trying to communicate the things that he saw in words that are understandable. And some of the things that he saw are so indescribable that we just don't have words for them. So he uses images. So uh, if you view the book of Revelation, something like an action thriller, it has adventure, it has excitement, it has drama, it has success, uh, suspense. Uh, it has war, it has battles, it has uh, evil, it has uh, suffering, it has all of the elements that you would ever find in any action thriller. And uh, you can uh, find a lot of satisfaction by just reading the book. There's a little bit of romance there. There's the, there's the harlot <laughs> on the beast. <laughs> so coming soon, if you will, uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. If you can imagine, uh, that's the essence of the book. The Lord is coming soon. And it, this is like a promo for the, the book of Revelation, if you will. So let's kind of look at it from that perspective. I put this together when we had a lot of little kids that were part of the group, and I wanted to kind of get them into the book. So you're just a little bit older as all, so we're all little kids, right? Uh, the book begins, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must short or must soon take place and he sent and communicated by his angels to his bondservants john first word to highlight there and to uh, look at is the revelation that is a word that i think gives us the essence of the entire book in fact i kind of titled the subpart here the The unveiling essence of the whole book is a revelation. It's not a puzzle. It's not an enigma. It's not a mystery. It's something that God is attempting to reveal something to us. Uh, The world which we live in, even within the church, finds the book of Revelation extremely difficult. God is attempting to reveal things to us. So we need to come to it with an attitude of, anticipation, trying to figure out what God is saying. So in this prologue, the first part, I call its unveiling essence. It's a little bit of an outline, more detailed here. I'm trying to capture the thoughts of what we have in the passage. So let's look at this very first word. The Greek word, apocalypsis. This word is used in Scripture Primarily conveying the idea of attempting to unveil something. Something that is prior, in, uh, previous, is hidden, is now unveiled. Taking the veil off. Or it'd be like unwrapping a package so you can see what's inside. That's the essence of the meaning. Has the idea to reveal, as the word is often translated. That's the essence of it. So the book of Revelation is an unveiling it's not, a, it's not a locked book. It's, it, in fact, it's not a sealed book. Portions of the book of Daniel were sealed, and Daniel was not able to see what uh, were contained there. This is an unveiling or an opening up. And that's what we want to look for in every passage is what is God unveiling? What is He revealing? What is He opening up? 
Now, some things that he opens up are already revealed in the Old Testament, and now he's kind of putting it all together for us. In fact, that's the main thing the book does, is it takes a lot of images, it takes a lot of concepts out of the Old Testament, putting them together, and now kind of showing how they're all going to be related in this future time frame. So that's the essential meaning of it. The noun occurs 18 times in the New Testament, 26 times for the verb. I don't know if that's meaningful to you. Uh, But in terms of the second coming, seven times. Even Luke, in his gospel, in chapter 17, 30, refers to the revealing. In fact, there are about five particular words that are used of the second coming. One of them is erkomai. We'll see that one later on. Coming. One of them is this word here, an unveiling or a revealing. That's used somewhat commonly of the second coming. Uh, another one is parousia. You're probably familiar with that one. That's kind of the arrival. Uh, so there's about five of these. So this is one of them, an unveiling or a revealing. For example, Luke 17:30. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So when Christ comes, the whole world is going to see him. We're going to see that in a verse in this prologue. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation. Here you have the noun, as we do in the book of Revelation. The revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's an unveiling of Jesus Christ. The second coming is a revealing even more so than everything John saw. To John, it's an unveiling. And what John is trying to convey to us is that unveiling. And when Christ comes, it's going to be truly unveiling. Uh, we're going to see him in full glory. Second uh, Thessalonians 1.7, we, we have the noun again. And to give relief, when he does come, to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be Revealed. It sounds like a verb there, but I think it's I've got noun noted there. Uh, either way, revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So it's an unveiling, a re- revealing. And even Peter, first Peter seven, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, The references are to his second coming. So this is a key word that describes and gives us an aspect of the second coming. It's a full revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word is used of believers as well. And for believers, we will be revealed as well. In other words, who we truly are is going to be revealed. And particularly those aspects that God has developed in terms of spiritual maturity, spiritual growth, are going to be revealed. So, believers in the future, Romans 8.19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And we will be revealed 
along with the Lord Jesus Christ, because we will return with him. Peter, in 1 Peter 5.1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Peter anticipated the glory, particularly himself, that is to be revealed. So we are going to be experiencing something of a revealing, just as the Lord Jesus Christ will be at his coming. It's also used of Antichrist, interestingly. In Second Thessalonians... You what? Probably. I don't know. Feels it felt fine before. Were you were we losing volume or something? Or? Okay. It's used of Antichrist three times. One of them in second. In fact, all three are in Second Thessalonians chapter two. So when Antichrist appears in the world, he's not going to be known. He will, in fact, uh, probably be not recognized uh, by most people. Uh, In fact, the revealing is probably to those that are sensitive to spiritual truth. Second Thessalonians 2, 3, Paul says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. He's talking about the apostasy or the the. The second coming. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. In other words, there will be an unveiling of the man of lawlessness. This is a phrase that applies to Antichrist. Uh, the Antichrist is revealed, the son of destruction. So Antichrist will be revealed during that seven year period of time. In verse 6, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. Same word. So it's used of Antichrist. And it's very commonly in Scripture used of truth. So when God opens the word, illumines our heart, it's a revealing, it's an unveiling. And there are several passages, Matthew 11 25, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, this is a prayer, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. Spiritual truth, insight, scripture, and there's many other passages as well. The gospel in Galatians 1.12, for I neither received it, this is Paul, from men, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel was revealed to Paul in a personal way by the Lord himself. So that's apocalypsis. It has this idea of revealing or unveiling That's the essence of the book. That is what we will be endeavoring to look at. So look at it from that perspective. Don't look at it as a closed book. It's an unveiling. So we have the revelation. This is the soon coming here. This is kind of the promo. These are the credits here. The revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Now, that little phrase there, the commentators kind of go off on all kinds of little discussions. Every one of them uh, uh, essentially talk about what is the meaning of Jesus Christ and they camp on that little word of. So let's take a look at it. So the second thing that we have after the unveiling essence of the book or the revealing, the revelation, its central focus, the central focus of the book is Jesus Christ right off the bat. It's not about prophecy. It's not about events, not about judgment, so much to say. It's not about uh, even the second coming. It's even bigger than the second coming. It's about Jesus Christ. And I think that's captured in the essence of what we have in that little phrase. Uh, in the Greek, Iesu Christu is in the genitive. That's why in the English it's translated with an of to try to convey this genitive idea. Now, the grammars will give you different kinds of genitives and the commentators kind of go through the gamut of different possibilities. It could be genitive of source. That would convey the idea that it's made by him or originates with him. But I think the context eliminates that. Because the context seems to indicate that it's from the Father, if you just read in into the verse there. A uh, very possible suggestion, in fact, a very likely one, is that it's about Jesus Christ. That would be an objective genitive. This is the revelation that tells us who Jesus is. That fifth gospel idea that we talked about last night. So, he is the topic. He is the subject. It is about him. Now, that's true of the book. But it's also possible that the genitive could be subjective. And if it's subjective, then it's the revelation that comes from Jesus Christ. That's a possibility. And some of the commentators favor that view. There's also a possessive genitive. It's the revelation that belongs to him. In other words, he has ownership over it. If it's possessive, then that's the idea. The revelation that belongs to Jesus Christ, he's the owner of it. It, it is his by ownership. Uh, Wallace includes another category. He calls it plenary genitive. And with that idea, he is conveying the thought that there might be more than one. And I'm almost inclined to kind of feel that because I... I think it's certainly objective. It is certainly about Jesus Christ. But it could also be subjective. It could be from him because he speaks quite a bit in the book of Revelation. And he does reveal. And uh, much of the revelation seems to come from him. So it could be a combination of objective and subjective. And certainly it's possessive. It, it's his revelation belongs to him. So it may be, uh, and, and John seems to do this in the gospel. He, he might, um, there's a big debate over whether some of the phrases or some of the concepts that John teaches have kind of a double meaning. For example, in one occasion he's talking about, and it was night. And the idea uh, of what's going on there is certainly evil is prevalent. Some commentators in that context think that John is talking about not just the time of day, but he's talking more broadly and probably speaking in two senses there. 
Uh, that's debated, and that's possible, but if you have a problem with that, some, some scholars have a problem with that. Uh, then you probably have a problem with this plenary idea. Anyway, uh, I think at least, so I'll let, let you choose which one. Personally, I, I think both of these are true. Now, that doesn't say that this genitive is both, but uh, if this plenary idea is, is a legitimate category of types of genitives, then you could include both of them. So, that's my inclination. So, I think at least it is the revelation about him concerns him. And that certainly, uh, if I'd have to pick one, that would be the one that I'd pick. So, that's what we have at the very beginning here. So, in our little promo here, the revelation starring Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's about Him. He is the main character, the main focus. He is what the whole book is all about. The next little phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him. This suggests as we know elsewhere, that all revelation ultimately finds its source in the Father. And this is conveying the idea that uh, the Father is the source and this is something that He gave Jesus Christ. So we have a divine source here. Given by the Father. In fact, that little word given uh, is real, real frequent in the book of Revelation and it starts off Right in verse 1. So, he is the author of all truth. For example, Matthew eleven twenty seven: All things have been handed over to me by the Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So, Revelation comes... From the Father, and then the Son reveals that to uh, those that desire to know truth. So, which God gave him in our prologue, we have its unveiling essence, its central focus, and its divine source. That would be the next phrase. Uh, this is what you do in a detailed exegetical outline. You try to summarize all of the parts. This is what I'm trying to do in this very important beginning. We won't do this with every verse. We don't have time to do that. But I want to start us off uh, with a foundation here. So we'll keep looking at these little phrases which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Let's look at those two little phrases there. To show and must soon take place. The first one is its necessary purpose. We have a purpose here. Necessary in the little word must take place soon. And also the concept of showing. We have the purpose there. Uh, the little word must is the translation of a three word word in the, in the Greek day. Delta Eo, uh, epsilon Iota. Uh, elsewhere in Scripture, depending on the context, sometimes it just is used in a very simple sense, but there are many contexts 
where the little simple day is used of divine necessity. And I think this one certainly would be. It carries the idea of something that must and because it must and God is behind it will occur. Divine necessity. So when it says to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place, these in fact are going to take place. And what it suggests is a sovereign God who is behind all of the events of the book of Revelation. Divine sovereignty is behind the little phrase there. And we're going to see a major theme in the book of Revelation is a sovereign God acting. He is orchestrating events. He is bringing judgment. He is bringing uh, peoples together. He's affecting his plan for the nation of Israel. All of this within a very short time span. All of this within a seven year period of time. At least the first part of the book of Revelation. So these are things are by divine necessity. These must and will occur because God is sovereign. And in his sovereignty, he's going to make sure that every detail comes to fulfillment. The little phrase in verse 1, shortly, the word take place or the word shortly is entake. And that, uh, that's troublesome in terms of our approach. The preterists, for example, make a big point out of that little phrase and then a similar one that we'll have later on at the end of verse 3 where it says, for the time is near. What they will accuse our viewpoint is that, oh, you're departing from a literal interpretation. We're taking this passage literally. So they would interpret it in the sense that uh, these things will take place soon. In other words, the time frame between when John saw these things and the fulfillment and the outworking of them is a short period of time. Now, the word or the phrase, uh, the word and phrase can be used in that sense in some context. In fact, it's used in that way in many contexts. But if you do a word study on this particular Greek word and some that are related to that word, uh, you'll find out that it has another usage as well. It not only has the idea of something taking place very soon in terms of time, but it also has the idea of something taking place rapidly or quickly. Without respect to time. In other words, when it takes place, it's going to come about in a very rapid and quick succession. Uh, and there's some context where it's used in that sense as well. Uh, and that's the way that we would take it. Uh, it also carries the idea of when these things begin to take place, there's going to be there's a certainty about them. There's a certainty and a suddenness when they begin. Now, I think Jesus gave us some clues as well, and we see some clues in the book of Revelation, in an image that is used. 
in terms of how do we just how do we interpret this pass, uh, this phrase here? He uses the illustration of a thief that comes in the night. You don't know when the thief is going to come. And this little phrase is used in that context. So the idea is not that the thief is going to come within a matter of days. You don't know when the thief is going to come. But when he comes, he's going to come and he's going to break in and he's going to take everything that he can and he's going to do this as quickly as he can in order to get out of there, in order to escape and not get caught. So the imagery that Jesus uses using the phrase conveys this idea of this. When it happens, it's going to happen quickly. And I think that's the best way to to take this passage. Now, this is also a basis from our perspective of the doctrine of imminence. The idea that the Lord could come at any time, it could be short. In fact, the disciples uh, anticipated that the kingdom would be established uh, in Acts 1 in in verse 6. They asked the question, are you going to establish the kingdom now? So they anticipated that the Lord was going to basically remain and establish a kingdom very shortly. And obviously it didn't happen because God has another plan and he had uh, a vision for uh, the age in which we live in. We call the church age. So uh, the idea of suddenness is probably what we have in in the passage here. Uh, The divine view in terms of God is the one. This is another view in terms of how to interpret that phrase. From God's perspective, uh, the time is short. But I think that's a view that is not necessary. I think the idea of when it happens is going to happen suddenly, uh, conveying this idea of imminence. Uh, The idea of we should always be ready for the Lord's coming. Uh, The first century believer should be ready. Any believer during the church age should be ready, and certainly we in our time. So that's dealing with that. So the preterist interpretation, I don't think is necessarily literal. It's a matter of taking a phrase, and we're taking the phrase literally as well, because we're looking at how can that word be used in other contexts, and if it can be legitimately used in that other sense that we just mentioned, then we can take it literally in that sense. So the accusation that we're departing from a literal interpretation uh, is is not a valid uh, criticism. So we have the revelation of Jesus Christ, or starring Jesus Christ, And the producer of this drama is God himself. We have that in the the passage. Uh, To show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place, uh, which God gave to him to show. So it's God that is behind it all. He's producing all of the drama and events. The next little phrase, let's look at the, the bondservants. And the phrase at the end of verse 1, communicated it by his angel. Uh, Notice the word, uh, this is New American Standard Translation, communicated. Uh, The Greek word there is an interesting one. We'll look at it in a moment. So we have the, it's unveiling essence, it's central focus, it's divine source, that's God. It's necessary purpose, the little phrase has the word day in it. It's humble recipients. Those are the bond servants. 
And then sixthly, we have an angelic instrument. Communicated by his angel. Now, there's a couple of things we want to note there. From the very start, the very first verse gives us a clue of major things that are going to take place throughout the book. We already talked in the introduction of the activity of angels. So, right off the bat, the whole book, angels are involved in its communication. Angels are behind the communicating of this book. Now, that word that's translated communicate is semion or semeno. 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 If I can get it right. Uh, Notice, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the word that John uses very common, the noun form. The verb form uh, has the idea of to make known possibly by signs and symbols, which kind of gives us a clue as to what we can encounter in the book. The the noun is translated signs in uh, John's Gospel. John doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. And what he's conveying there is these miraculous works, these things that he selects as kind of the outline of his book, the structure of his book can be structured around the miracles. Those are signs in the sense that they point to something beyond the miracle. They point to something about who Jesus Christ is. They tell us something of his character, his nature. John's favorite word is this word. The verb form is the word that we have in this context. So it has the idea of something communicated or something made known by the usage of signs of some sort or symbols or images in ways that are not the normal. In other words, it's not like epistolary literature where Paul just lays out doctrine and teaching. The communication in the book of Revelation is sometimes very metaphorical, sometimes symbolic. We already talked about that in the introduction. So, made known by signs and symbols. That's the word there. Communicated. Signified is a word that uh, some translations used uh, to try to capture the essence of the Greek word there. So, in our little promo here, The revelation starring Jesus Christ. God is the producer. And we have uh, special effects, if you will, by his angels. (laughs) When I did this for kids, I I had some other visual special effects that they enjoyed, but I didn't bring them along. (laughs) You guys wouldn't laugh anyway. So that's our promo. The last little phrase, to his bondservant, John, uh, that gives us not only the unveiling essence, its central focus, its divine source, its necessary purpose, its humble recipients, bondservants, gives us an angelic instrument and its human author, John. So I try to capture the essence of uh, verse 1 at the beginning of the prologue with a series of phrases here. 
Well, this is John, and we talked a little bit about him in our introduction. We'll talk about him a little bit more when we get to verse 4. So, here's the process of God's revelation. It comes from the Father as all revelation does. It is mediated through the Son. We have that in this passage. It's utilizing an angelic instrument. So part of the communication involves angels. And angels will play a part in interpreting some of the revelation. And it is passed through John as the human instrument. And then it's passed on to uh, the seven churches. And we could extend that on to Pleroma Church. <laughs> and then Pleroma Church to the world. So that's the process of revelation. And, and this is pretty typical of Scripture. Not always angels, but usually... Well, all Scripture from the Father ultimately mediated through the Son and using a human instrument. That's the whole concept of inspiration. And it's usually given to God's people in the New Testament. It would be to churches. Uh, that would be true of the letters. That would be true of the Gospels as well. So our little promo, we have Jesus Christ starring. God is the producer. We have His angel giving special effects. John's just the cameraman. He's just the guy behind the camera recording everything. He's instructed to write it down. So in a sense, he is the recorder of the revelation. So that gets us into the book. You want to read it? You want to study it? You want to continue or shall we go home? <laughs> the kids wanted to hear more. They said, give us more. The next phrase in, in verse 2 who bore witness? Who does the who refer to? The near antecedent is whom? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, gave Jesus Christ to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness. The near antecedent is John. John bore witness. But this is just telling us, I saw all of these things. I, I was an eyewitness. I was legally involved here as a person that could give testimony in a courtroom. This is a courtroom term. This is a legal term. And, and John is saying, I am a worthy witness here. I witness these things. If I were to stand before a judge, I could give an account of what I saw. The word uh, martureo is the Greek word there. And as I picture here, it's a word that is used in the courtroom. Somebody that has relevant experience that's related to the issue. If you were caught, well, Brad can tell us all about this. Uh, if you uh, were in court and you had relevant information relating to a case, you could be called to give testimony. That's the idea behind that word. So John is saying, I have relevant experience. I have relevant information. And now this book is about that relevant in information. 
he is going to bear witness to two things. The Word of God, that that is revealed immediately to him. Now, he's already been a witness to the Word of God and he's already written an entire gospel and he's written three letters. And now he's going to be the writer or the instrument that God will use to convey this new revelation. So a witness has relevant experience and then when he's called upon, he gives testimony. And that's what the word is conveying here. So John is going to bear witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even, in other words, particularly all that he saw. So this is kind of a reference or an encapsulation to the entire uh, book of Revelation, because most of what he is uh, writing about are the visions that he saw. He's recording the visions that he saw. So he gives testimony. Now, historically, not even in John's time, but eventually, the word, we get the word martyr from this word, martyreo. So, by the second century, uh, I don't think there's evidence for the first century, but Christians were persecuted for giving testimony. In other words, they were holding to the truth of the, of the Scriptures and testifying to the Word of God, just as John is doing here. And they did it to the point of some of them dying. And we get the Word from those experiences of some that paid that ultimate price. We get the Word martyr from that, that Word. Now, that was not the case at this point historically. But just a little background and where the word martyr comes from. But in the context, John was in fact willing to pay the ultimate price. And the disciples or the apostles actually did. In fact, all of the, the apostles except John died a martyr's death. And historically, we have some evidence that John, that they attempted to kill him and he didn't die. Uh, there's a tradition that he was boiled in oil and survived. And God preserved him, apparently, to be able to write the book so that he could be a, a witness to the things that he would see. So, verse 2 focuses on John and this testimony, this relevant experience that he had in receiving this, these visions and now testifying to the Word of God. This is inspiration. Uh, this is uh, God's authoritative Word. Uh, that's the essence of uh, verse 2. Now, in verse 3, we have the what we might call the first beatitude of the book of Revelation. And in this beatitude, immediately we are encouraged to read the, the book. So, uh, verse 2 confirms what we see in verse 1. So that we have confidence in it. Verse 3 is an encouragement to follow through and to continue reading through the book of Revelation. So in verse 3 it says, Blessed is he who reads. Now in the, in the, the original text, in the Greek text, he who reads is singular. 
And I think it reflects a historical situation in the early church and, and even in, in Old Testament times. In the synagogue, there would be someone that would read because the, the scriptures were not easily accessible. Everybody didn't have their little New Testament that they could carry in their pockets and certainly didn't have them in electronic form and carry on their iPad and all the, all the things that we have today. Uh, the scriptures were very precious and hard to come by and most people didn't have a copy. So most people learned the scriptures and memorized them oftentimes as a result of their experience in the synagogue, Old Testament believers. And within the church, we had a similar situation where you would have people reading the scriptures. It was important to read the scriptures because in some cases that was the only access that people had. So the one that read that had a special blessing. And not only the one who read, and those who hear, that's in the plural in the Greek text. So it has the idea of people out there listening to somebody reading from the scrolls that were available either in the synagogue or in the early church. The one that reads is blessed, and the one who hears is blessed. So just the mere taking in and the hearing of the Word of God is a blessing. Now, it should not stop there. There's a third element. So we have the reader first in view. Secondly, we have the listeners. This is the historical context. Now today, we can both be the reader and the hearer because we have access, easy access to Scripture. And there's no excuse for us. So blessed is he, is, is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. So this kind of tells us the nature of the revelation. It's a prophetic book. The words of the prophecy. And then there's a third element. The obedience aspect. Now, we need both components. We, we need to not only study the Word by reading or hearing or being involved in the Word, but we need to take it and take application from it and see how it might have uh, relevance and application in our personal life. So we have right off the bat an encouragement and a blessing, a promise of blessing. And I mentioned in our introduction this is the only book in Scripture that, that I'm aware of that promises a blessing for those that, in fact, read and hear and obey. Now, obviously, any portion of Scripture that you read and hear and obey, you'll be blessed. But here we have a, a, a promise along those lines. So, this is a book that, unfortunately, is neglected by the church, neglected by individual Christians. Uh, people are fearful of it. But from the very beginning, the book gives us encouragement that uh, we shouldn't fear it. In fact, we should uh, be involved with it and, and, in fact, actually read it. So, it's a good book to look at. So, that's kind of the perspective that we should carry in. The idea of a revelation. So, God is going to reveal things to us. We're going to see things that we haven't seen before. And the idea that as we see these things, God is going to bless us as we apply them. Which implies that this is not just for curiosity. This is not just to kind of fill a notebook. 
This is not just so that we know what God's going to do in the future, but there's very practical application. We'll try to draw some of that out of the biblical text. There are things here that will call for us to not only apply, but to, in fact, change in terms of our lifestyle and the way that we think about life in general. So we have this encouragement or this first beatitude in verse 3. Heed the things which are written in it. And then a little encouragement, further encouragement, for the time is near. We have a different phrase there to convey this idea. In fact, this phrase actually has, in most of its context, the idea of nearness. But I think we can still imply or use this to imply the idea of imminence, adding to that other phrase as well. Uh, the eminent return of the Lord. We have a benediction as part of this prologue. Or part of this introduction. That's the prologue, uh, verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 8. We have what is very common in Paul. And we're going to find this common in the... Uh, the book of Revelation as well. We're going to find Trinitarian passages. Right off the bat, we have a Trinitarian passage. At least if you take uh, some of the phrases there in the way that uh, indicates Trinitarian. So in verse 4, John to the seven churches, we've already talked about where these are headed, that are in Asia. I've shown you a map of that location. We'll talk a lot more about that when we get to chapters 2 and 3. Uh, very similar, again, to Paul. Grace to you and, Paul, uh, and peace. Most of the letters of Paul begin in that way. A greeting of grace and peace. I think they're sequential. You have to receive the grace before you will experience the peace. The concept of grace, I think, is something that uh, you all are familiar with. Unmerited favor. In other words, everything that we receive from God is not as a result of anything that we can do to earn or to merit. And along with that, he... Uh, greets with, with peace. Then he identifies where these blessings come in this benediction. I think the first one is from him who is, who was, and who was, and who is to come. And then we have a comma there. And then we have an and. So I would take that first phrase as the Father now, by itself, it almost appears, and some commentators would take it as a reference to the Son. Why would some commentators take it as a reference to the Son? From Him who is and who was and who is to come. And it may be. It may be a reference to the Son. But if it is, then it kind of steps out of the Trinitarian mode there. Why would a commentator take that phrase as a reference to Christ rather than the Father? It's a title for 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Right, the coming aspect. The coming aspect. We don't generally think of the Father as coming. In fact, this is pretty unique here, if it's the Father. Uh, and I think there's enough reasons to hold that it is the Father. And that's why I think it's Trinitarian. Um, he comes, I think, in the sense of the new heavens and the new earth. It, it appears there's the there in in, in scripture we, we have Christ as always being the one that mankind kind of encounters. I think there's a lot of evidence in the Old Testament where you can support the idea that the angel of the Lord is probably the second person of the Trinity. So, the second person is the one that has, uh, is visible to mankind, and then he is incarnate in Jesus Christ and revealing. Paul writes that Christ will hand it all back over. Yes. So that God can First, be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15. So he actually subjects himself to the Father at yes. the very, at the very, very end. Beginning. After the kingdom, actually. Yes. And then if we, when we get to chapters 21 and 22, we're going to see something that is really unique. It almost seems that all of the manifestations of God are manifestations of the second person of the Trinity. But uniquely, in uh, chapters 21 and 22, we have the presence, what seems to be the Father. And that might be what we have in, in view here in terms of the coming of the Father, if, in fact, this is the Father. Your question: The Net Study Bible has a reference to Exodus three fourteen, where the Septuagint reads just like it reads here, of He who is. So that would point to the Father. I think that was your question, right? What evidence would there would this be pointing to the Father? Uh, actually, the question I said: uh, Why would commentators take this as as a reference to Christ? Okay. And, and I think most of them do. Yeah. Uh, so, whether it's Christ or the Father, uh, if, it's, if it's the Father, then we have a nice, neat, Trinitarian little passage here. And I think legitimately we can take it without stretching, because the phrases are used, of the, the other phrases, like you say, are used of the Father. Yes. The ands add to that. In other words, you have three entities or three persons that seem to be in view here. The Father, right. And the stress here is eternality. That's, that's, that's kind of the, the main concept that we don't want to overlook. The eternality of the Father. Who was, who is, and who is to come. Uh, the troubling part of it is the who is to come part. And if what we've interpreted is legitimate, then... Uh, it's more than likely the Father. Uh, the other is a little troubling as well. When it says in the next phrase, and, and, and notice it says, and, in other words, it distinguishes the first person from another person and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. The troubling part is, are there seven spirits? Are there seven Holy Spirits? Well, why does it identify it in this way? 
uh, again, we need to continually go back to the Old Testament and continually see where probably John is, is pointing or thinking. A lot of his images, a lot of his phrases, including this first one, come out of the Old Testament. And I think that's where we have to get clues in understanding uh, these seven spirits. So let's take a look at what are the possibilities in terms of the Holy Spirit. I think the next reference is probably clearly the Holy Spirit, but why identifying the Holy Spirit as seven spirits? This is just kind of a list of what some of the commentators list. Some of them hold to angels. Some of them see the majesty of God, not the Holy Spirit. Uh, some of them see activity uh, in the churches. Some tie it to Isaiah 11.2. In fact, a lot of commentators make this, this tie-in here. And that's, that's a possible tie-in. This may be the thought. The only problem there, there seems to be only six. So if there's only six, uh, there's actually a, a seventh, but it, it seems to be an introduction or a summary. Think the sound. Okay. Uh, possibly a better tie. There's a, there's a passage in Zechariah four one through ten. It kind of conveys, and it's a passage that seems to indicate the Holy Spirit conveying an idea of fullness. And that's probably the thought that John has here. And for the sake of time, I'll let you look up that passage. In fact, I think I've got the key verse. I have so many notes oftentimes that I get lost in them. No, I don't have that verse other than listed. So, probably the most likely possibility is either a tie-in with Isaiah 11.2 and there's a little problem there, uh, but more than likely we have the, the, the idea of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, the idea in Isaiah 11.2 seems to focus on the function of the Holy Spirit or the function of the Holy Spirit and it's given in a six-fold function. Uh, whereas uh, Zechariah seems to emphasize more the fullness idea. So, seven, as I mentioned in our introduction when we were talking about numbers, oftentimes conveys this idea of not only fullness, but completeness or perfection. And when I was talking about numbers, I also remembered later on, I didn't mention a lot of other numbers that are used commonly in, uh, in the book of Revelation, like, like threes are real common, and usually they're in the context of the Trinity. Uh, six is real common in the... Uh, book of Revelation, and it's usually associated with man, where man always falls short of perfection of seven. 666 is the epitome of mankind in uh, the first beast. Uh, fours are common. They seem to be associated if there's more than the literal usage, but they're in context that seem to associate with things of the earth, four corners. Four winds. Uh, we also have 
Twelves are real common. They seem to be in reference to the nation, Israel primarily. So you have numbers that seem to have patterns in the book of Revelation that may be conveying or be associated with more than just the literal numbers. And again, uh, that's an area that's debated and wondered about. So here with the seven spirits, if in fact we have this idea of fullness, we might have a basis in Zechariah 4, 1 through 10. So the benediction begins with the Father. His eternality is emphasized. And this is also from the Holy Spirit in all his fullness, in all his perfection. And then in verse 5, we have a long benediction relating to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this, we have, let me give you kind of the outline, the way I've kind of outlined it. Uh, Who he is in verse 5, the essence of who he is or some elements of who he is. And then in verses 5, the latter part, the second part of verse 5 through verse 6, what he has done is a summary of that passage. And then verse 7 seems to focus on what he shall do. So three aspects of Jesus Christ. Since he is the main topic, he is the main subject, he is the revelation, he is the focus of the whole book, it's not unnatural that John kind of goes off in this benediction of kind of praise on who who Jesus Christ is. Who he is, what he has done, and what he shall do. So let's look at verse 5 again. Who is he? Well, we have three things again. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, first of all. Now, in Scripture, when it refers to Christ as a witness, his witness can be associated with several things. Matthew 5, verse 17, and other passages in Matthew, seem to indicate that Christ is a witness of history. He knows all that has taken place. He's omniscient. He knows all of history. He's certainly a witness of prophecy, Matthew chapter 24, because he unveils essentially the same thing that John receives revelation concerning. The Olivet Discourse that Jesus gives to the disciples is pretty much a summary and a thumbnail sketch of the major portion of the book of Revelation from chapters 4 all the way to the end of the book. So he's a witness of prophecy. Uh, Deuteronomy 18 also anticipates a prophet like Moses. And most people take that to be a reference uh, to Messiah. Acts 3.22 seems to hint at the possibility of him being a witness of prophecy. Uh, John 18.37 seems to indicate that he's a witness of all truth. And that's supported by what we saw in uh, verse 1 as, as well. 
he, he, the truth is mediated through the Son. And he's certainly a witness of everything that takes place in the church. The next phrase, the firstborn of the dead, that's uh, an interesting little phrase. I don't think it necessarily refers to him as the first one to receive resurrection. Uh, you have to take a look at the Greek word, the Greek word uh, prototokos. I don't have that on a on a slide. I think I've got too many T's in there. If you study that term, not only in the New Testament, but if you trace it back even in the Old Testament, you're going to find out that that, that that word has the idea of not something necessarily first in chronology. In fact, the key passage that we should look up uh, that kind of gives us a clue. Remember, most of what John gives us has some Old Testament tie. In Psalm 89, for example, you might turn there. Look at verse 27. The reference here is to David. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Was David the firstborn? Nope. He was the youngest, right? So, it's not speaking of the idea of physical birth. It's not has the idea of chronology necessarily. It has more the idea of prominence or preeminence. So, he is the preeminent resurrected one. That's who he is. He's the resurrected one that is most prominent, most preeminent. Not necessarily even first. You might consider someone like Enoch or Elijah as ones that were resurrected before Christ in terms of chronology, in terms of time. And even Jesus performed resurrections. So, it's not speaking firstborn in terms of time or in terms of physical relationship. It's, it's speaking in terms of this idea of prominence or preeminence. And by the way, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of that uh, Psalm 89, uh, the Greek word that we have here is also present. So, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. 
And he is also who he is. He is king. He is ruler of the kings of the earth. This is who he is. He is king of kings, Lord of lords. This is his position. This is who he is. And this is what this book is all about. Uh, Part of the tribulation is establishing his sovereign rule upon the earth. He is taking the earth over from usurpers. He is taking it back so that he will rule it in the millennial kingdom. So already in this benediction and in this early part of the book of Revelation, we kind of have a summary of some of the elements that we'll be looking at and trace through uh, the rest of the book. This is why we want to take a little bit of time here. So from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, John, as he kind of speaks of Jesus Christ, uh, already we see him somewhat falling down in worship. To him, he's going to praise and glorify. And he's going to go off on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is natural. As he sees him, this is normal. To come into contact, to come in the presence of God, he kind of leaves, or part of the benediction is part of this, this beginning of praise and worship. So we're already introduced to that concept. And in our introduction, I mentioned we're going to see that element as a major theme, and we'll develop that further. To him, he is the object. He is the object of our worship. To him who loves us. Again, now we have, uh, starting here, what he has done. This is what he's going to praise him. It's part of worship is recognizing what God has done, recognizing his work. And there's going to be three things here. To him who loves us. As far as I know, I have not found, there may be, uh, I don't know, but I have not found another passage that speaks of his love in the present tense. Maybe you can look and help me out. Uh, Which is interesting. It's usually he loved us and oftentimes in the aorist tense. In other words, past or sometimes in the perfect love with an ongoing effect. Here, uniquely, as far as I can tell, in the present. In other words, and and it's a present participle with the idea that he loves us and it continues. In other words, he continually loves us. Now, we know that's true, but here we have it explicit. Here we have it overt, where it speaks of his ongoing present tense sense of his love. This is what he's done and continues to do. So we have a focus on his love. So in the midst of judgment, in the midst of wrath, in the midst of disaster, in the midst of all of the awful things that we'll read about beginning in chapter 6, for the believer, we have an abiding and an ongoing love uh, that surpasses anything that uh, we could ever experience not even going through uh, the experiences that are going to be described in the book. The next thing we have is to him who loves us and released us or loosed us 
from our sins by His blood. That's clear reference to His redemption. And much of the Bible deals with the New Testament, particularly with His redemption. So, a reminder, and this is something we can continually praise Him for. We can praise Him for His ongoing love. This is, should be uh, an important element of worship. Continually just acknowledging that He is abiding in His love. Uh, always remembering, and this is part of our worship time when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, to remember specifically that redemptive work that He accomplished. And we should always be uh, mindful of that. So, from the very book, beginning of the book, we have that focus. That's what John is focusing on. So, the object of worship is Him, and the content of that worship uh, are the things that He's done for us. The third thing that we could worship is a sovereign work. He has made us to be a kingdom, comma, A kingdom, and I think in the Greek text, the idea here, I think they're in apposition, which means a kingdom, uh, namely, or with the idea more specifically, a kingdom more specifically with priestly aspects. So, it's a kingdom that has priestly aspects associated with it. Uh, here is one of the New Testament passages that speaks of the priesthood of the believer. This is different from the Old Testament saint. The Old Testament, in the Israelites, only certain ones, the ones of the tribe of Judah, were priests. In the church, as 1 Peter chapter 2 also indicates, uh, all believers, all genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are part of this body that we could call a kingdom with a priestly role or function. And we function in this time as priests in the sense that we are essentially mediators between an unbelieving world and a holy God. We are the ones that are the instruments that He will use to share the gospel with the lost. We are also mediators in that we are the salt of the earth. We are the preservers. And this is as a result of what He has made us. This is what He has done. He has, he has made us to be a kingdom specifically of priestly character to His God and Father. And now He breaks out to Him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. An outburst of praise. And that's what we should do as well. Uh, as we think about the significance of His love, the thought of His redemption, and the place that He's put us, it should well up within us praise towards Him. And then verse 7, we'll begin there, the second hour. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Uh, why don't we take a break at this point and we'll pick up in verse 7 in the next part.